Welcome, everybody. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the first Facebook Live edition of the We the People podcast. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we're doing something that we're very excited about, and that is taking your questions about constitutional interpretation. Uh, over the past year, many of our great We the People listeners have written in and said, what are the major methodologies of constitutional interpretation? Can you give us examples of them? And how can we become familiar with these methodologies so we can choose for ourselves which ones we think are most convincing? And that's really your job, uh, ladies and gentlemen, as students of the Constitution, is to educate yourselves about these methodologies so you can evaluate them and use them, remembering always that there's a difference between your constitutional conclusions and your political conclusions. So some of you have already submitted questions via Facebook and Twitter, and I'll answer them, and then we'll take your questions live. So get those ready and send them in. And joining me as great constitutional interlocutor and uh, constitutional partner in crime is Tom Donnelly. Tom Donnelly is our phenomenal new uh, senior fellow for constitutional studies. He oversees all of our constitutional content at the National Constitution Center. We're all so thrilled that he's here, and I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Tom, thank you for joining. Thank you, Jeff. And I, I mean, I think the, the best place to begin is really at the beginning. Uh, so what are the basic approaches to constitutional interpretation? Okay, so this is a really important question, and I've identified eight that I want to talk about. And I'll try to do this in, I'm not going to promise how many minutes, but this is the elevator speech version of everything you need to know about the eight methodologies of constitutional interpretation, and I'll do it as economically as I can. And here are the eight methodologies. Text, original understanding, history and tradition, precedent, natural law, pragmatism, representation, reinforcement, and bipartisan judicial restraint. Okay, those are the eight. All right. Okay, here we go. Let's pick through. Okay, text. Everyone agrees, uh, liberals and conservatives and everyone in between, that we begin with the text of the Constitution. And I hope, of course, our listeners and watchers will begin either with the National Constitution Center's pocket constitution or with our phenomenal online interactive constitution. And on Constitution Day, September 16th, we're launching our Constitution app that will allow people around America and across the world to get the Constitution on their mobile phones, access the interactive Constitution, including the new structural provisions of the Constitution, which we're launching over the next couple weeks. So we begin with the text, and uh, obviously there's some very, uh, small number of questions that the text clearly settles. You can't be president if you're under 35 years old. But most questions of constitutional interpretation are more complicated, and there are few that are answered clearly by the text. But to give an example of a textualist decision that relies on the text and not on its original understanding, I think I'd point to the Virginia Military Institute decision, where the court held that the Virginia Military Institute's all-male admissions policy violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. And that's because the court read the text uh, which says that no person shall be uh, denied equal protection of the laws. Now, that conclusion is impossible to reconcile with the original understanding of the Equal Protection Clause, which, as we know, countenanced gender-based uh, discrimination 
in allowing the Married Women Property Acts to continue un, uh, uh, interfered with. And Section 2 explicitly anticipates that the states may deny women the right to vote uh, and says that when it denies the right to vote to African-Americans, uh, apportionment is correspondingly reduced. So VMI is an example of a textualist decision that doesn't rely on original uh, understanding. Then there's originalism. And Justice Scalia was the great uh, exponent of the idea that the Constitution should be interpreted uh, not only in, in light of its text, but in light of the original public meaning of the text, which generally meant focusing on the original expectations of the ratifiers, not the framers. And that's an important distinction. Justice Scalia said, we don't look at what James Madison thought when he drafted the Constitution right across from where I'm sitting in beautiful Independence Hall, because that the draft of the Constitution was just a proposal. It wasn't until it was given uh, approval by uh, the ratifying conventions that it attained the status of supreme law. And that's why we want to know what the original public meaning was at the time, so we have a sense of what the people who ratified it uh, might have understood the text as meaning. I suppose the most prominent uh, originalist majority decision recently would be Justice Scalia's decision in the Heller case, the uh, Heller and McDonald, uh, the, the right to bear arms decision. Justice Scalia held for a majority of the court that the Second Amendment is an individual right and therefore uh, D.C.'s ban on gun possessions in the home uh, was unconstitutional. Interestingly, there was an equally vigorous originalist dissent, which said that Justice Scalia got the history wrong and the amendment was originally understood as a protection of state militias not to be displaced by federal standing armies. Uh, we the People podcast listeners can decide for themselves by going to the interactive Constitution and seeing what Nelson Lund and Adam Winkler, the leading liberal and conservative scholars of the Second Amendment, agreed about its meaning and also its uh, what they disagreed about. But uh, Heller was an important originalist decision. The great test for originalism is Brown versus Board of Education. What do you do with the fact that it's pretty clear that at least the people who proposed the amendment in 1868 did not believe that it applied to uh, schools because several of them stood up in Congress and said, don't worry, this is not going to disturb segregated schools. How is Brown consistent with original understanding? I actually had an opportunity to ask Justice Scalia that question at a convivial dinner, and he thought for a moment and then threw back his head and laughed and said, you know what? No theory is perfect. And that's a, a candid answer. Some scholars have tried to reconcile Brown with originalism. Michael McConnell notes that by 1875, a lot of uh, Reconstruction congressmen thought that uh, the right of education was a civil right, and the 14th Amendment guaranteed uh, equality when it came to civil rights. Uh, but 1875 was not 1868, so a strict originalist might not buy that. What the Brown debate shows is that when it comes to originalism and all the methodologies, it's very important to choose what level of abstraction you're defining the right in question. So if you say, what did the framers specifically anticipate the 14th Amendment would do? You have to say they didn't anticipate it would disturb segregated schools. If you say they were trying to embrace a broader principle that cast enhancing legislation, legislation that degraded people on the basis of racial caste system was impermissible, then you could apply that to say that they may not have understood that segregation enforced caste, but we know that it did and therefore segregation has to fall. But once you've moved to that higher level of abstraction, that's where all the action is. You can define it even more broadly and say the 14th Amendment guarantees equal concern and respect or equal human dignity. If you find the right to define the right in question that broadly, then any connection to the original understanding is sort of hard to discern, and that wouldn't be an originalist approach. But that distinction between the 
of what Ronald Dworkin used to call the concept and the conception, the, the specific expectation of the framers and the broader principles that they were embracing is key to originalism. Our third methodology is history and tradition. There are certain parts of the Constitution, most notably the 14th Amendment's uh, guarantee against deprivations of liberty without due process of law, that don't tell us which liberties are protected. And the court has said that in trying to define the liberties that should be considered fundamental, uh, judges should look to what rights have historically been viewed as fundamental over the long course of American history. So the difference between originalism and the history and tradition approach, originalism is a snapshot. What did the framers think in 1787 or 1868? Um, history and tradition is a wide angle lens. What did uh, states adopt uh, over the course of time, beginning at the framing and leading up to the present? Obviously that leaves more discretion to judges to choose which window to identify when they're trying to pick the relevant history and tradition. Maybe the most prominent example of a unenumerated liberty that the court decided has become embraced by history and tradition is the Lawrence case in 2003 that struck down uh, sodomy laws on the grounds that most states, according to Justice Kennedy, had come to view them as unconstitutional or atavistic. Justice Scalia in that case objected that Justice Kennedy was applying the wrong baseline and was, was not counting up the state's right. But the history and tradition approach requires judges to discern which rights are deeply rooted in the collective conscience of the people, to quote Justice Cardozo from the famous Palco and Connecticut case. That leads next to precedent. And uh, judges, uh, all of them at least, believe that precedent has some role in constitutional interpretation. And judges should not lightly overturn precedents that have come to be relied on. That's one of the big tests for the fancy Latin word is stare decisis or let the decision stand. And the question of when you abide by stare decisis uh, includes an inquiry into whether the decision has become relied on, has been integrated into the fabric of our life and our law, uh, and also whether it's workable or whether it is uh, difficult to apply in practice. I guess the biggest debate about um, whether to uphold a case based on precedent was the decision whether or not to overturn Roe v. Wade. And in the 1993 Casey decision, a plurality of justices, uh, including Justice Kennedy, Justice O'Connor, and Justice Souter, upheld Roe, even though they said they might not have agreed with it as an original matter, because they said that precedent required it. And Justice Souter wrote the part of the opinion describing why society had come to rely on Roe and it had not proved to be unworkable. Again, the dissenters, including Justice Scalia, disputed that characterization. Our next methodology is pragmatism. Uh, uh, Justice Breyer is a great advocate of pragmatism and says that judges should apply decisions that are workable and that allow Congress and the president and the courts to interact productively as co-equal branches of government. And in his decisions, including his 78-page dissent in the uh, Fisher uh, 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 decision, uh, sorry, the parents involved decision involving uh, a school affirmative action, he said school boards have come to rely on a degree of affirmative action. Uh, th there's no practical problem with it, and it would be incredibly disruptive as a practical matter to overturn it. So he combined a kind of approach, stare decisis, focus on precedent with an emphasis on the pragmatic effects of a decision. Then there is natural law, and we know from our We the People podcasts and from the interactive constitution that the framers 
broadly believed that all human beings are endowed by God or nature with certain unalienable rights in the state of nature, that they're not able to alienate or surrender to government when they create civil society, even if they want to. The quintessential examples of these rights are the right, the rights of conscience, because my religious beliefs or lack of beliefs the framers believed are the product of my reason, and I'm not able to alienate to you my powers of reason, if, even if I wanted to. Um, and the right to alter and abolish government when it becomes destructive of natural rights is another unalienable right because the whole point of the social contract is to ensure greater security and safety of the rights that I've retained. Natural law approaches today are associated with broad declarations of sweeping human rights that are difficult to root in the text or history uh, of the, or original understanding of the Constitution. So it's an approach that is favored by judges who are not originalists and are not necessarily textualist or precedent people. And I guess uh, one example of natural law reasoning might be Justice Kennedy in the Casey decision where he said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own conception of meaning of the universe and the mystery of human life, that broad protection for human autonomy, which Justice Scalia sort of dismissed as he, what he called the sweet mystery of life passage, has been repeatedly applied by Justice Kennedy in other cases, including most recently and most importantly, the Obergefell marriage equality decision, where he said that this basic right to equality and dignity uh, ensures a right of marriage equality. And I, I would call that a natural law approach because it basically says there's an inherent right to equality and dignity uh, that needs to be applied by judges, even if it can't be closely rooted in text, history, tradition, or original understanding. We have just uh, two more um, approaches, if I'm counting right. The next one is called Representation Reinforcement. There's a great and famous book by John Hart Ely called Democracy and Distrust, published in the early 70s. Check it out, uh, watchers and listeners. And he basically said in this book, the job of courts is generally to defer to the political processes, except in cases where the political processes themselves have failed because of prejudice against groups who can't get a fair shake in the political process or other attempts to choke off the information stream like laws that infringe the First Amendment. The most famous example of a political process opinion and one on which Ely relied uh, comes from a footnote. And of course, only lawyers really care about footnotes, but the most famous footnote in 20th century legal history is footnote four from the Caroline Products decision. And footnote four basically set forth a bunch of circumstances where what the court called the usual presumption of deference to legislation wouldn't apply. The first is where a suspect uh, class or fundamental right uh, is being affected. The next is where uh, the law may affect discrete and insular minorities, as the court said, that are not able to fend for themselves in the political process. And the third is where a right specifically enumerated in the Bill of Rights is implicated. If you want, this, this here's value for money. Uh, uh, we the people, listeners and Facebook wives, uh, live watchers, basically there's very little actual doctrine in constitutional law. You can get the gist of it really fast. So I'm now going to share with you the uh, three tiers of scrutiny, which is the most legalistic part of constitutional law. Nicandro, our great web editor, uh, who's uh, going to uh, law school next year, um, knows this. And you're going to be so far ahead in con law class because you know the gist of uh, everything we need to know in con law. So here it is. This is the legalistic part of the uh, summary, but here we go. The court and try to figure out uh, whether a a class is suspect or not, in other words, um, uses race as the paradigmatic example. 
And African-Americans are the paradigmatic suspect class because of the terrible discrimination they suffered and the fact that the 14th Amendment was passed to protect them. And in trying to figure out whether other classes are also suspect, uh, the court has asked questions like, has the class in question suffered from a history of discrimination? Is it defined by an immutable characterization? And has it um, suffered from uh, uh, defects in the political process that make it unable to get a fair shake? And as a result, the court has said that not only race, but alienage is also a suspect class. Gender is viewed as a semi-suspect class. In other words, it's not quite as constitutionally troubling as race, but almost. So what, what does it matter to have a suspect class? Well, I, I said there are these three tiers of scrutiny, and there's a kind of jargon associated with each one of them. If something is a suspect class, like race, then any law that is based on race has to s satisfy strict scrutiny. That means it has to be necessary to achieve a compelling governmental interest. If something is a semi-suspect class like gender, it's almost as serious as racial discrimination, but not quite, then the law in question has to be substantially related to an important governmental interest. And finally, if it's not a suspect class, but it's an ordinary law affecting economic rights, then the uh, law just has to be uh, rationally related to a legitimate governmental interest. So that sounds kind of jargony, but that's really the gist of con law, and it's really just tools for judges to decide whether they're gonna take a really close look at laws and try to smoke out illicit motives behind them, in particular prejudice or animus against vulnerable minorities, or whether they're gonna generally defer. There's only one more uh, methodology to talk about, and that is bipartisan judicial restraint. And that's almost more of a sensibility than a methodology, but it basically holds that because the Constitution is uh, designed to allow legislatures and the political processes to make most of our most important choices, judges should be very hesitant to overturn laws unless they clash with rights clearly enumerated in the text of the Constitution or Bill of Rights. The most prominent avatar of bipartisan judicial restraint was Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who famously said in the Lochner case, which struck down maximum hour laws for bakers uh, in the early 20th century, he said the Constitution is made for people of fundamentally differing points of view. And he also said the Constitution doesn't enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics, which is this great line. Nowadays, many people don't remember Herbert Spencer, the great social Darwinist who uh, insisted that the survival of the fittest required the striking down of protective legislation. But Holmes encapsulated the oddness of trying to impose a particular economic theory on the country by judicial fiat. Uh, over the course of history, there have been liberal and conservative defenders of judicial restraint, ranging from Holmes, uh, who was uh, a Nietzschean aristocrat, to uh, Robert Bork, who is a more traditional uh, uh, social conservative, to uh, Felix Frankfurter, a progressive who became very devoted to judicial deference. Uh, but that tradition has an honorable uh, root as well. So there we go. I didn't time it, but that's all, all I that's got. That's pretty on much everything. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's all you really need. Uh, so thanks for that superb introduction, Jeff. Uh, Thankfully, I mean, we have we have some some great questions already. I think you've really teed up um, a lot of different avenues to explore. Um, I'd like to remind uh, the, the the viewers out there that if if you have any questions, please type them in Facebook Live. Um, and so let's let's begin with the first one. Uh, so here here's here's one uh, viewer question. Uh, I'll sort of tie two together, actually. When studying the Civil War amendments, which topics, angles, themes do you think need more scholarly attention? And sort of relatedly, I think, is someone asked, uh, who are the most prominent proponents of a liberal originalist approach to constitutional interpretation? Those liberal originalists often relying on the Reconstruction Amendments. Um, if you want to take sort of one or both of those. Great. Well, I'll tee it off, and then I'm going to 
ask you what you think, because, Tom, you've come to us from the Constitutional Accountability Center, which is a great group in Washington, which is essentially a liberal originalist think tank that files briefs arguing that constitutional text and history, honestly applied, can lead in many cases to progressive as well as conservative results, and that it's a sign of Justice Scalia's influence that liberals have embraced originalism as an important tool of constitutional interpretation. The leading liberal originalist scholars are both of our mentor, I think, Akhil Amar. Did you have him in law school too? I did. You did. So Akhil, who all, we the people listener knows and and uh, everyone who comes to the Constitution Center is familiar with, is the great uh, teacher of the Constitution who kindled my love for uh, the Constitution uh, long ago in the mists of the 1990s. And he's become the most prominent liberal originalist. And he's inspired an entire generation of students of the Constitution, including both of us, uh, and we're the same generation, of course, and we're different generations, to uh, insist on applying text and history in a principled way. Jack Balkin at Yale is another great liberal originalist. So listeners, if you want to learn about liberal originalism, begin with Akhil's book, The Constitution and Introduction. Uh, America's Constitution, a biography. Even better. I knew that's exactly the title I had in mind. America's Constitution, a biography. And then Jack Jack's book is called Liberal Living Originalism, Living yes. Originalism which is uh, very good, too, and a great introduction. Um, so let's talk about examples where the justices themselves have applied originalism uh, for liberal uh, results in recent cases. And many of these are the results of briefs filed by the Constitutional Accountability Center. So I want to—you get the credit for them because you, you filed some of these and—, and uh, one of the most dramatic examples was Justice Kagan in the Evanwell case involving the question of whether the Constitution required or allowed states to draw voting districts on the base of eligible voters rather than total population. She gave a name check uh, to Jacob Howard, one of the uh, Reconstruction Congress people. Tell us about what he said and what Justice Kagan said that he said. Sure. So the, the uh, Evanwell decision had to do with um, how state legislatures draw their districts and whether they count uh, voters or total population. And uh, this was a, a debate that occurred while uh, Congress was debating the Reconstruction Amendments. And when Jacob Howard, uh, who introduced the 14th Amendment to the Senate, um, talked about Section 2 in representation, um, he specifically said that it's, it's uh, you know, numbers, not voters. That's the theory of our Constitution. And this was something that um, was stressed in, in Constitutional Accountability Center's brief, uh, written by uh, Elizabeth Wydra, David Gans, and Brian Gorod, just a, a terrific brief. Um, and, you know, it's an example, I think, of how much the scholarship of people like Akhil Lamar, like Jack Balkin, uh, like Jim Ryan at Harvard, um, who were inspired in part by Justice Scalia's example to really dig into the Constitution's text and history, how it's filtered from the academy um, to public interest law firms and ultimately um, up to the Supreme Court. And what it allows for is a real apples-to-apples -apples debate over the meaning of the Constitution. You have great scholars on the left like, uh, you know, Amar and Balkin, and you have great scholars on the right like uh, Steve Calabresi and Michael McConnell, and they agree on some things, they disagree on others. Um, but rather than just, you know, these cosmic battles between living constitutionalism and originalism, the two real tag words you often hear in constitutional debate today, um, you often have, you know, uh, progressive and conservative arguments rooted in the Constitution's text and history. It's, a, it's an extraordinary moment to follow constitutional law, I think. It is. It's so exciting. And there were a few other recent examples uh, where the court uh, 
embrace liberal originalist arguments. Justice Ginsburg, in both the Shelby County case and also the Affordable Care Act case, invoked uh, those arguments. Tell us about what she said in those cases. Sure. Uh, in Shelby County, which dealt with the uh, constitutionality of a key part of the Voting Rights Act, the court ultimately uh, struck it down. But in dissent, Justice Ginsburg turned to our old mentor, uh, Akhil Amar scholarship in part, and also uh, Michael McConnell uh, of Stanford, to go back to sort of the, 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 the text and original purpose behind uh, the 15th Amendment, which was, you know, in, intended to get rid of racial discrimination in voting. It specifically empowered Congress to do so. And she told a powerful story of the Reconstruction framers, um, you know, looking at uh, abuses in the South uh, that kept African-Americans from the polls um, uh, and, and how the 15th Amendment empowered Congress to go after these tactics and how the Voting Rights Act, therefore, uh, which had done so much to eradicate racial discrimination in voting over the course of 50 years, um, you know, was consistent with the original meaning of the of the Fifteenth Amendment. Great. And finally, tell us about the Affordable Care Act case. Sure. So there, uh, Justice Ginsburg relied on uh, some progressive scholarship looking back at the Constitutional Convention um, and how the Constitution developed uh, right here in Philadelphia, um, and looked specifically at how Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution, which deals with the powers of Congress. Um, uh, how the framers were originally, the original principle behind this was to empower Congress to go after genuinely national problems. And they, here the, the, the phraseology they used were problems for which these states were separately incompetent. And the idea there is that you connect that general principle to the Commerce Clause and that that combined with the Necessary and Proper Clause empowered Congress um, uh, 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 to enact the Affordable Care Act. And so there you have uh, a traditional, uh, you know, limited government argument, um, you know, coming from uh, conservatives about about uh, Congress overstepping its bounds when it came to the Affordable Care Act. But on the other side, you have uh, Justice Ginsburg and progressive scholars telling a, a counter narrative of the founding. And again, it's 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 powerful to have those arguments, I think, in both sides. That is a great example. And the, the first uh, questioner asked, where should there be more scholarship? And my sense is that the conservative side, in particular conservative judges and justices, could more deeply engage the progressive originalist challengers. So you don't see Justice Thomas or the late Justice Scalia engaging the originalist arguments against, for example, the 14th Amendment applying to voting rights at all. I mean, there's no historical dispute that the framers of the 14th Amendment did not expect it to apply to voting rights uh, because we know in Section 2 that they said, hey, if the Southern states do deny voting rights to African-Americans, their apportionment is going to be reduced. But that has not prevented uh, the conservative justices from applying the 14th Amendment to a host of cases from Bush v. Gore to the line of cases striking down majority-minority districts. I think that just as Michael McConnell wrote a brilliant article, which everyone should check out uh, if you're interested about originalism and, and the desegregation decisions, trying to justify Brown on originalist terms. So it would be very useful for young conservative and libertarian generation of scholars to go back into that voting rights history and to either try to justify uh, the court's uh, voting rights jurisprudence in originalist terms, as McConnell did for Brown, or concede that it's impossible to reconcile, but at least to answer the arguments uh, on the other side. I should say we're going to continue with this great conversation, but uh, Facebook Live uh, viewers, please send in your questions. And uh, here, Nicandro has just passed us a thrilling stack, and Tom will ask them when it's time. Absolutely. So uh, 
Here's a good one. How do judges decide with which methodologies to use? How do they prioritize? Such a good question, and it's a good question for all of us as students of the Constitution. How should we choose which methodologies to prioritize? The first thing to do is learn them, and that's why, with apologies for the condensed, you know, elevator speech version of the methodologies, you you really want to familiarize yourself with them and try them on and see which ones feel to you most principled, because that's what I want to challenge you to do. Don't pick the methodology that coincides most naturally with your political preferences. The whole point of the methodologies is to restrain you from imposing your political preferences through the bench and to ensure that you're following the Constitution rather than your passions. Now, there's a lot of scholarship that suggests that the way judges pick methodologies is to pick the ones that happen to coincide with their political preferences. And the cynical view is that the methodologies are just a smokescreen for politics. And Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson wrote an interesting short book recently called Against Interpretation. Is that what it was? I'm not doing too well on the book titles today, but it's a good Oxford University Press book. And he ran through the methodologies and said, hey, look, the judges and justices who are applying them either betray them in principle when they clash with their politics or are just using them to impose their politics. Therefore, let's throw out the methodologies and just be restrained. Judge Wilkinson's solution was to embrace one of the methods that I called a methodology, which was bipartisan restraint and merely to uphold most laws unless they clash with clearly articulated rights. I think that's a very plausible choice. And you just see the way he made his choice. He looked at the methodologies. He saw the way they were being applied. He decided they were smoke screens. And he thought the best way for him to be principled is generally to be very deferential. That's why Judge Wilkinson criticized his conservative colleagues for cases like Heller, uh, which he found both impossible to justify on originalist grounds and also unrestrained. He called it the Roe v. Wade of conservative constitutionalism. Uh, When I teach constitutional law, I just encourage students to learn about all of the methodologies, to pick one or a combination of methodologies that they find most convincing, and then to apply them in a principled way. That's the most important thing. So, for example, say you are a natural law person who thinks that the right of dignity clearly justifies the result in Roe v. Wade, then you should take seriously the argument uh, offered by conservative libertarians or libertarians who may be conservative that the health care mandate in the Obamacare cases also violates the basic right of autonomy by coercing people to buy something that they wouldn't otherwise buy. The Cato Institute was has been quite consistent in filing briefs opposing the constitutionality both of the health care mandate and of restrictions on abortion, both by invoking this natural law-based right of autonomy. But don't apply the autonomy right if you're a liberal when you like the result, as in Roe v. Wade, and not when you don't like the result, as in the health care mandate case. And the same applies to conservatives. Justices and judges have a really hard job. They are working with coalitions. They are Their decisions have huge consequences. But we, as students of the Constitution, have this beautiful luxury, which is to actually be principled and relish those moments when your constitutional conclusions diverge from your political conclusions. Those are the when you know that you're being truly principled, like Felix Frankfurter. It's like the Frankfurterian frisson when you know know that you're doing it right. So uh, viewers, choose which ones you think are useful. And listeners, if you find this kind of conversation helpful, then we can continue to have discussions about the methodologies. We can dig in more deeply to each one of them. 
and you'll have plenty of time to figure out which ones you find are most persuasive. And the one thing I'll, I'll add is, in addition to listening to Jeff's introduction at the beginning of the, these different arguments, another good book that I can plug is uh, Philip Bobbitt's Constitutional Fate, which, again, tells, uh, I think he breaks it into six different constitutional arguments. And it's a great, it's a short book, and he tells each, uh, he goes through each argument using a famous figure from constitutional history as an embodiment of that type of argument. So you get a little bit of law and a little bit of legal biography. And it's just, it's a terrific read. And, and sort of anyone, any citizen I recommend it to, anyone going to law school, it's just, uh, it's a great way to think about constitutional argument, a great supplement to your intro. That's a great idea. And of course, the best thing everyone can do is just read. You've got to teach yourself and educate yourself. And the only way to do that is to read about the Constitution. So another good book along these lines is Cass Sunstein's recent Constitutional Personae, which uh, cuts the uh, mustard in uh, four ways. I think I, I, I can't do them right now. Uh, but he, he has a different typology, and uh, that's a good way to go. And I think what we we have created a recommended reading list for the Constitution Center for books we're selling at the Constitution Center bookstore. I hope they're available online. And this question is challenging both of us. Why don't we make a pinky promise to actually uh, uh, make a good list of recommended constitutional methodology and constitutional history books that we, the people listeners, can use to educate themselves about the Constitution. That's a, that's a terrific idea. And, and again, I, I'd like to remind, if, if anyone has questions, uh, please type them in. Um, also, be sure to subscribe to future NCC Facebook Live feeds. We're going to try to do, uh, do more of these. So please subscribe, and then they will uh, automatically come to your attention when, uh, when that moment arises. So let's turn and, to... And one, and one more yeah, plug. Sure. Of course, uh, Facebook Live uh, viewers who are joining us for the first time, if you're not already a subscriber to our We the People podcast, please join the up to 400,000 listeners a month uh, who are tuning in and engaging with our phenomenal debates of liberal and conservative scholars who are every week engaging the best arguments on all sides of the constitutional arguments at the center of American life. Excellent. Um, here's another question. So uh, what is the legal difference between the so-called judge-created rights, like the right to privacy, uh, how are they different from the explicit constitutional rights, like the right to free speech? So for, for lawyers, this is the difference between enumerated and unenumerated rights, and is a real flashpoint of, of constitutional interpretation. So uh, how, how should our, how should our, our, our viewers think of, uh, think of that particular divide? It's a hugely important divide. It's led to some of the most contentious debates of the 20th and 21st century. And in particular, uh, textualists and originalists like Justice Scalia on the right, and then liberal textualists like Hugo Black on the left, the progressive left, insisted that judges should only enforce rights explicitly enumerated in the text and to enforce rights that were read into the due process clause of the Constitution through a methodology called substantive due process was completely illegitimate and should be resisted at all costs. So the most famous substantive due process decisions we mentioned the Lochner case, which struck down maximum hour laws for bakers at the beginning of the 20th century. Roe v. Wade is another one, which read a right to choose abortion into the Liberty Clause. And the infamous Dred Scott decision, striking down the Missouri Compromise on the grounds that it violated the property rights of slave holders, only the second time since uh, in its history that the court struck down an act of Congress, the first was Marbury versus Madison, is also a substantive due process decision. So th what's the difference? It leads back to the methodologies. Um, the first question is, should judges only enforce rights written down in the text? And we know they 
shouldn't do that because of the Ninth Amendment, which says, uh, don't do that. Don't assume that if a right isn't written down, it isn't protected. Uh, the enumer Can I do it by heart? The enumeration of certain rights should not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Why did the justices, why did James Madison include the Ninth Amendment? Because originally he had resisted the need for a Bill of Rights on two grounds. First, that it was unnecessary. The Constitution is itself a Bill of Rights by constraining and clearly defining and enumerating government powers. And second, because it might be dangerous because future generations might make the mistake of thinking that if a right isn't written down, it's not protected, and it wasn't possible to enumerate the capacious list of natural rights that inhere in all human beings by virtue of their existence. Because after all, the Bill of Rights wasn't creating these rights, it was declaring rights that the framers believed in many cases were inherent and came from God or nature. But simply to say, as the Ninth Amendment does, that there exist certain unenumerated rights that the Constitution protects doesn't tell us what are those unenumerated rights? How should we identify which rights are unenumerated and protected? And that's why we need the constitutional methodologies. Uh, we don't. We certainly don't want judges to be making up rights, saying merely because I think the right is really the right of autonomy is really important, or I agree with John Stuart Mill that any uh, act that doesn't cause harm to others, as opposed uh, to uh, uh, harm to self, should be uh, permissible. You need a principled methodology. So the kinds of methodologies that judges have looked to in trying to give content to the Ninth Amendment are principally the history and tradition approach. That's really the most widely accepted way of figuring out whether or not a right that's not specifically enumerated in the Constitution is protected. Now, the, orig the original core source of unenumerated rights was not the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, but was the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, which says, again, we'll see how I do, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. So we know something about what the Privileges or Immunities Clause meant because John Bingham, the framer of the 14th Amendment, the James Madison of the Reconstruction Amendments, stood up in Congress and said, hey, here's what the privileges or immunities are, and they included in Bingham's mind, both, at least most of the rights explicitly enumerated in the first uh, 10 amendments, which ones were omitted is a matter of uh, dispute, which we can talk about in another podcast. But also Bingham said, some of the basic fundamental common law rights that had been recognized in a decision court called Corfield and Coriel, written by Justice Bushrod Washington in the early uh, Nicondra uh, snickering. <laughs> it was. Everyone should know Corfield and Coriel and Bush around Washington because the people on the House of the floor of Congress are standing up and saying, well, we all know that these rights which uh, Judge Washington enumerated, which included the right to make and enforce contracts, to sue and be sued, the rights that also coincided with the ones that were enumerated in the Civil Rights Act of 1866, basic common law rights of property and contract that were uniform from state to state and were a matter of right rather than discretion and didn't vary uh, were privileges or immunities of citizenship. So if I'm a citizen of Virginia and I go to Maryland, I can make contracts in Maryland. I can enforce my property rights in Maryland. I can't vote in Maryland elections or sit on Maryland juries because that right is a political, not a civil right, and therefore not a privilege or immunity of citizenship. But that's a long way of saying that the core privileges or immunities that the Reconstruction framers agreed on included much of the Bill of Rights and some of these common law, Corfield and Coriel Civil Rights Act of 1866 rights. Beyond that, we're off to the races. And that's where all the action in the 20th century is. Should uh, 
you know, the right to choose abortion be included or, or uh, how about the right to, to engage in sexual intimacy and so forth? And that's there's been a lot of dispute about that. And you need a methodology to answer that question. What's your take on that debate about unenumerated rights and, and where do you think we're at uh, right now? Well, I think this it's an area where at least in the last 20 years or so, the scholarship has just been so exciting. We've seen, because I mean, basically where this this whole debate over privileges or immunities clause goes all the way back to the great justice Hugo Black, who prophetically said, this is what the reconstruct, this is what John Bingham thought, this is what the reconstruction framers thought, and was basically left out of the house by many, you know, both Felix Frankfurter, one of the most academically oriented justices of his time, uh, great scholars like Charles Fairman and Raoul Berger. And it's it's with the scholarship of Akhil Amar, Mike Curtis at Wake Forest. Um, and even now, you know, with these days, with with uh, even conservatives like Steve Calabresi, who was mining state constitutions for what might uh, count as a pri- privilege or immunity, that it's 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 a it's sort of just a really rich vein of scholarship. Or, or you know, Kurt Lash on the other side wrote a, a big book on the Privileges or Immunities Clause with a more limited understanding of, of what it entails. But again, it's 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 sort of a it's a battle that really has been waged for 50 years, but is waged on sort of equal footing on both the unenumerated right side and the enumerated right side today in a way that I don't think it it, it was in the past. You're right to say that it is exciting to see the left and the right converge around a historical approach to privileges or immunities, and also an agreement that to the degree that a right has become so widely accepted that it's embedded in a whole bunch of state constitutions, then it might well count as a privilege or immunity today, even though it wasn't at the time of the framing. Justice Scalia himself endorsed that approach in his death penalty jurisprudence, where he said that uh, if a practice is considered cruel and unusual in a majority of state constitutions today, then it should be struck down. This is previewing a collaboration that may not come to pass. I hope it will, but it's so exciting that I'm going to give a sneak preview. We've worked with Zach Elkins and his great team at the University of Texas to create the part of the interactive constitution that allows you to click on any part of the Bill of Rights and see its antecedents in the revolutionary era state constitutions. And viewers and listeners can do that now at uh, constitutioncenter.org. But Zach Elkins and the NCC team are talking about digitizing all of the state constitutions, both historically and the contemporary ones. And that would make the kind of searching that Steve Calabresi and others are doing in trying to figure out which rights have become fundamental much easier. So behind this incredibly attractive NCC banner, I have the book that I had to use in law school when I was doing research on state constitutions. It's a two-volume set by Bernard Schwartz. And in the old days, you'd have to go through volumes and kind of compare the text physically, now that you can search it, it's much easier and quicker to say, hey, uh, the right to privacy uh, is recognized in X number of state constitutions. California, for example, now recognizes it explicitly as a right. And if this project that we've got going is up and running and using existing web resources, of course, you'll be able to see how many states recognize the right to privacy as uh, fundamental, what, in what terms they do so, what conception of privacy. And if a whole bunch of states are recognizing a right as fundamental, it's fairer to view it as a fundamental right today. One last point. David Cole came to the Constitution Center recently to talk about his great new book. We're doing so, I'm doing so badly on the titles today. You can Everyone can find it on Google and should read it, but it basically traces how both the um, right to bear arms movement and the uh, the, the gun rights movement and the marriage equality movement gained uh, movements in the 
uh, thing, uh, Engines of Liberty, Nicandro is prepping me on. Thank you very much. It's Engines of Liberty, and it's a great book. And he says, whatever you think about the status of the right to bear arms at the time of the framing, and you can find out on the interactive constitution where you can see the two states, Vermont and Pennsylvania, viewed it as an individual right, and the others viewed it as a collective right of state militias not to be displaced by federal standing armies. In the 1980s and 90s, the uh, supporters of the right to bear arms had huge success in embedding the individual right to bear arms in state constitutions. So Cole says this was a great example of successful activism on their part. And today, the right to bear arms should be recognized as an individual right because a majority of state constitutions recognize it as such. So that's just one example of how this incredibly important debate about how to identify unenumerated rights is playing out today. Well, and it is, it's a way of remaining faithful to broadly worded text while also coming up with a principled way of, of, of limiting it so it's not just judicial whim. So it's do exciting. You, let me ask, do, do you, how do you think about this? I always tell my students, please don't just pick the rights you want to enforce and say they're fundamental. Justify it according to a methodology. But it's hard for people to do that. If you If you believe very strongly that the right to bear arms is an outrage uh, to public safety or the right to choose is fundamental. There's a strong temptation to read it into the Constitution. Do, do you believe that judges do and should constrain themselves with the methodologies? I mean, generally speaking, yes. I mean, I think what's nice about this form of, of going at unenumerated rights is that it gives many pathways for citizens of today to still promote constitutional change if what counts are state constitutional amendments or legislation or actions happening in the states and judges discerning that to try to um, decide what is the will of the people, to return to Barry Friedman's great book. Um, uh, but figuring out really principled ways to do that, I, I think it's a, an exciting way to both ensure um, to reward political activity at the federal and, and state level uh, while also uh, uh, providing judges with tools to get at what our most fundamental rights are. Um, so we have we have a, we have a couple questions. People asking about uh, judicial dissents, and I'll and again, please, if you have any additional questions, continue to type them in. They're really great. Uh, so here we have one general. So it's just, are there any legal consequences to dissents on the court? And then one more specific, which is, what is Justice Thomas trying to accomplish with regular dissents? Um, how would you characterize his approach? What will be his legacy? So dissents generally, and then maybe a beat on on Justice Thomas. Well, for dissents generally, and first, Nicandro has brought another thrilling stack of questions up. Um, this is the, there's the magic void moment where I can brandish my hero, <laughs> Justice Louis Brandeis, who's near me here at the Constitution Center at all times. This beautiful bust actually means a lot. It was given to me by Alan Weston, who was a great scholar of privacy, his wonderful book, Privacy and Freedom, was the leading book on privacy of the 60s. And right before he died, he gave me this bust, and it means a huge amount to me. And obviously, Brandeis does too. So if you need any justification for the power of dissents, just look to Brandeis, because Brandeis's prophetic dissents in cases like Olmsted, where he insisted that the Constitution should strike down wiretapping and apply to new technologies, and his it was basically a dissent, even though it was technically called a concurrence in the Whitney case, where he sketched out a justification for the purposes of free speech and democracy that came to be the cornerstone of the court's modern approach to free speech in the 60s, shows that they're like, I don't know what, this is not a good metaphor, but little uh, 
ships in a bottle set out onto the ocean that eventually find shore, <laughs> but they, they can inspire future generations. We know that Justice Harlan's, the first Justice Harlan's dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, the case that upheld railway segregation, inspired the future Justice Thurgood Marshall so much that when he was an advocate, he would read Justice Harlan's dissent to himself to inspire himself before the oral argument in Brown versus Board of Education. And the court in Brown eventually adopted Harlan's views and struck down segregation for the very reasons that Harlan had prefigured nearly, uh, you know, not quite a century earlier. So for some, dissents are a, an appeal to future generations and a hope that they may persuade future generations of citizens and justices to embrace them. And that's often uh, the case. Uh, different justices have different views about the appropriateness of dissent. Justice John Marshall, as chief, discouraged dissents because he thought the court should issue narrow, unanimous decisions and that dissenting opinions needlessly politicized the court. This drove Marshall's arch rival and distant cousin Thomas Jefferson crazy. He accused Marshall of being a subtle judge who hid behind the cloak of unanimity and encouraged Jeffersonian justices to suppress their disagreement in ways that furthered Marshall's agenda. Jefferson much preferred the seriatim approach, the British approach, where each judge separately would say, I think this, I think that, and there was no majority opinion. What of Justice Thomas? Uh, he, his view is very much that dissents are important, and whenever he disagrees with the majority, which is frequently because he embraces a view of originalism that at the moment is unique on the court, he feels it necessary to set out his separate views. Justice, The late Justice Scalia said affectionately of Justice Thomas, the difference between me and Thomas, is that he would overturn any decision that he thinks is inconsistent with the original understanding of the Constitution. I, Justice Scalia, wouldn't do that because I'm not a nut, Scalia said affectionately. Uh, but And he meant admiringly that Thomas is so principled, he's got to dissent, he's got to file a separate concurrence to set out his separate views just because he thinks that the original understanding of the Constitution requires it. What will his influence be? It's an incredibly interesting question. We've, we've had a bunch of really rich symposium, a symposia about uh, Justice Scalia's legacy where his former clerks, ranging from Lee Otis to Larry Lessig, predicted that the, you know, this great justice had transformed the terms of constitutional debate in ways that, as we were talking about, liberals have now recognized, and that that influence would persist for decades. The counterargument is, since you've got a court where only Justice Thomas is an avowed originalist, perhaps we'll see fewer briefs being filed in originalist terms. But my sense is that Justice Scalia has so, so transformed the debate, so inspired advocates as well as lower court judges, that groups like the Constitutional Accountability Center will continue to thrive and their briefs will fall on receptive ears. But you know more about this than I, so what do you think Justice Thomas's influence and the influence of originalism will be? Well, I think one really admirable thing, just as a constant court watcher for, for you know the first few years of my career, is that Justice Thomas didn't just dissent and dissent vigorously in the sexiest cases of the term. I mean, it, 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 even in the most obscure cases, if there was something that he felt like he needed to say about the overweening nature of the regulatory state or um, the original meaning of, of, of anything, like he, you always had the sense that uh, he had well thought out views and almost like a, a, a stack full of potential opinions that he could pull out of his drawer um, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, in response to 
um, a salient question again, and even in cases that go unnoticed by nearly everyone, it's almost as though he's writing for certainly for himself, um, for the you know the the, cons the conservatives that he's inspired, and then even in those more obscure cases, writing in a way that I think is accessible for purposes of legal pedagogy. That even if it's a small case, it could end up as a you know a small note in a case book that someone will have to read someday. And so that's for 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 Thomas, I think that's his his admirable legacy. I mean, I think. Originalism more generally, um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, among conservatives, uh, other than Thomas, there isn't, you know, the deep commitment that quite Scalia and Thomas had. But there, I think Randy Barnett described even, you know, Alito and, and Roberts having an originalist sensibility and that they are um, attracted to originalist arguments, um, even if they use other methods as well. And I mean, I think for progressives, um, as they're uh, moving towards the possibility of a transition ideologically on the court, um, many scholars write about the fact that originalist arguments are powerful ways of returning to first principles. So if what you're attempting to do is shift the trajectory of the law, there's a real power to returning to first principles, to original meaning, as you're attempting to um, shift court doctrine on any number of issues, whether it's campaign finance or the Fourth Amendment or the, the power of the Reconstruction Amendments or what have you. That's hugely important and persuasive. And your reference to Randy Barnett, a friend of the center, a, a member of our coalition, a Freedom Advisory Board, who recently came to the center to discuss his great new book on, Nicandra, what's the, the title? Our, our, our Republican, Republican Constitution. Constitution. There, we both got it. Randy, I think, uh, calls himself uh, an advocate not of originalism, but of judicial engagement. And other uh, advocates of judicial engagement, like Clark Neely, uh, at the uh, Institute for Justice, uh, call it constitutional conservatism. And the basic idea is that it's the opposite of bipartisan judicial restraint, far from generally deferring to legislation, except when it clashes with clearly identified rights. Constitutional conservatives believe that it's a judge's job to enforce broad constitutional limitations, whether or not they're explicitly enumerated, um, because the Constitution requires it. Randy Barnett has been criticized by uh, conservatives who prefer uh, conservative judicial restraint like Ed Whalen for defining his principles of constitutionalism at a level of abstraction that's hard to root in original understanding. And it's the flip side of the mirror image about how broadly to uh, articulate unenumerated rights on the liberal side. But so just we, we can add that to our lexicon. I wouldn't call it a methodology, but the sensibility of judicial engagement, whether it's uh, conservative as in the case of, or, or libertarian in the case of Randy, uh, or liberal as exemplified by the Warren Court and uh, William Brennan, uh, is uh, one that will uh, continue to uh, thrive for a long time. Excellent. So we have time for one more question, and I would like to remind uh, our viewers again to please subscribe to uh, our, our, our feed here on Facebook Live. Um, and the final question, oh, sorry, And, Jeff, and to yes. the We the People podcast. And to the We the People <laughs> podcast, I, I, that, that yeah. as well. But I, I'll, I, I think we should end appropriately on, on, on Justice Brandeis. And uh, we got one question um, that referred to a, a review of your book by uh, Rick Richman, uh, where he criticized your insistence that Justice Brandeis would have dissented in, in uh, Citizens United. And he specifically said um, in, that uh, Brandeis would have agreed uh, with Chief Justice Roberts that the court cannot respond with judicial abstinence when faced with a law imposing a direct prohibition of political speech. 
Um, I mean, what do, you, what, 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 how, how do you think uh, Justice Brandeis might have approached uh, Citizens United, and what do you think of that particular criticism? I thought it was a very interesting criticism. I thought it's a great point to make and well worth debating. Kyle Salmon, in uh, a review in the Weekly Standard, made a similar challenge, so I think it's definitely worth responding to. Um, so in the book, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg told me uh, Justice Brandeis would not have been a fan of Citizens United, not at all. And I agreed with her analysis, noting that Citizens United implicated several of Brandeis's greatest concerns, most importantly, the curse of corporate bigness, the importance of deference to Congress and the states, and the corrupting effects of money in politics. And I noted that many of the progressive era laws that had been the basis for the federal law struck down in Citizens United were passed with Brandeis's approval. And I uh, concluded for all those reasons that he um, also uh, would, he viewed free speech, he was a Jeffersonian. And for him, free speech was a natural right that came from God or nature and not from government. And corporations don't have natural rights. Natural rights inhere in us by virtue of our reason. And Brandeis's entire defense of free speech in the Whitney case was based on the idea that human beings have an obligation to develop their faculties, to use that beautiful Jeffersonian phrase, which came from the Enlightenment, because only by hearing the best arguments on all sides of cases can we fully participate in, as citizens in American democracy. So that's why I thought he would have been uh, against Citizens United. There's another approach that Brandeis might have taken, and that is constitutional avoidance. He was a great advocate of avoiding sweeping constitutional rulings whenever that was possible. He wrote that in a famous case called the Ashwander case. And for law geeks, Ashwander avoidance, which I don't know, sounds spicier than it is, basically means if you can frame the question in a way that doesn't uh, require a broad constitutional ruling, do it. And in Citizens United, we know that there was a an avoidance-like approach that uh, Chief Justice Roberts had originally pressed on his colleagues. He has cited Justice Brandeis's Ashwander concurrence sympathetically uh, several times. And you could have held, A, that video on demand wasn't covered by the McCain finance law, that it was merely meant to apply to broadcast ads, or B, that Citizens United, which is a uh, for-profit corporation got so little corporate fundings, it was basically an ideological nonprofit, unlike Exxon, that there should be an exception and it wasn't supposed to be covered by McCain-Feingold. Either of those two approaches, which Justice Roberts pressed, could have allowed the court to avoid the sweeping question of whether or not corporations have precisely the same free speech rights as natural persons, and I think Brandeis would certainly have approved of that. On the other hand, the reason I think it's such a good challenge, um, you, you can argue it uh, the other way, if you like, it's true, as uh, these critics suggest, that Brandeis fiercely believed not only in freedom to speak, but also in freedom to hear. Flip Strum, Philippa Strum, in that great program we had on Brandeis here at the Constitution Center, my favorite moment of which was when Philippa Strum got up and she did an impersonation of the statue of Brandeis on Brandeis University, where she flew like a bird. Uh, it was a beautiful sight. She, she said that the point of Whitney, and you need Facebook Live to really get the all right, here we go. Sorry, we the people listeners. I'm going to get up and show our Facebook Live viewers what Philip Strom did. This, this is it, okay? The Brandeis statue on the campus, and this is deeply relevant to the constitutional point. Um, Philip Strom's point was, if uh, it's not just freedom to speak, but freedom to hear. And if the real reason we need untrammeled uh, protection for the thought we hate 
in America is so that citizens can hear all arguments relating to public matters and make up their own minds about which are relevant to democracy, then it's arguable that corporate-funded speech contributes to that diversity of views, enhances the freedom to hear, and should be protected uh, in the same way as speech that's funded by natural persons. And that's basically the argument that the majority in Citizens United made. And I think that argument deserves respect. I, 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 it's uh, for, for civil libertarian liberals and libertarian conservatives, Citizens United is a hard case for that reason. And I think it probably would have been a hard case for Brandeis because his uh, freedom to hear impulses might have clashed with his suspicion of corporate bigness. Still, for, I, on balance, I think Justice Ginsburg was right. Uh, he was the, the, in, in that case, I think the preference for natural person speech over corporate speech would have trumped uh, and he would have been with the dissenters who, in fact, this is surely relevant, Justice Stevens in his Citizens United dissent uh, cited Justice Brandeis's pathbreaking dissent in the Liggett and Lee case where Brandeis gives nothing less than a history of the modern corporation uh, beginning at the founding and culminating in the progressive era where a whole series of acts like the Tillman Act of 1907 curbed corporations, laws that were supported both by Democrats like Brandeis and Wilson and also by both the Republican candidates, William Howard Taft and Theodore Roosevelt, both of whom were opponents of the trusts and of, and of the corporate domination of monopolies. My next book is on William Howard Taft. Uh, viewers and listeners will be thrilled to hear. And I'm looking at this stack across the way of Taft's collected speeches, which I'm working my way through. And Taft also denounced corporate influence on the political process. I think he would have been against Citizens United too, but I respect the question. And if you want to keep this debate going, I'm happy to do that offline. Excellent. Well, thank you. That, that's all the time we have. Uh, Jeff, this was a lot of fun. Let's do it again soon. It was hugely fun. So feedback would be great. Viewers, we'd love to know whether this Facebook Live component adds to our usual phenomenal podcast format. Uh, and most important, have, do you find, have you found this useful? A bunch of you have been asking for tutorials on the methodologies. Was this helpful? And do you want more? And do you think it would be helpful? And I hesitate to ask you to give us homework assignments, but would it be useful for us to try to write or put together a short pamphlet or a book or series on the methodologies uh, so that you can uh, have suggestions for further reading and educate yourselves. Let us know. Keep tuning in to We the People, and please join us for the next episode of We the People and Facebook Live. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, and with great thanks to Tom Donnelly, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. Today's show was broadcast live on our Facebook page, so if you want to check out the thrilling video and see Tom and me interact, uh, then go to our Facebook page and check it out. Uh, the show was engineered by Jason Gregory and David Stotts. It was produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the great Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at Constitution Center. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate 
and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. And please sign up. This is not just a pitch for money, but for engagement. Just join at any level so you can get our emails and be part of the National Constitution Center family. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.